there's a lot that's going on that when we look at the world, there's a lot of tension in different parts of the world and how that tension then potentially translates into increased cyber risks and the ways in which those risks can be inflicted and then do harm. So I think that idea of being preparedness for a multitude of possible ways that, you know, I think cyber risk is changing. This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Carolyn Cassan, Associate Dean with a Master's in Global Affairs and Security at New York University, the Center for Global Affairs. Carolyn, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Thank you. So before we get started, why don't you tell us some about yourself, your background, and in particular, how you came about your focus around energy politics? Excellent. Well, thank you again. I really, it's such a pleasure to be invited to participate in your podcast. You're doing great work. So I hope I can make a contribution here in this episode. Yeah. So I've been at NYU for 20 years, um, the Associate Dean at the Center for Global Affairs. We have two graduate programs, the MS in Global Affairs and the MS in Global Security Conflict and Cybercrime. My own work is predominantly in the energy security geopolitics of energy, comparative energy politics space. Uh, I do a lot of work also in resource security. I really got involved in energy through living and working in Russia. So I had the opportunity in 1992 to take the Trans-Siberian. I took the Trans-Siberian. I ended up in Russia. I had done Soviet economics and Soviet politics for a year at Oxford when I was an undergrad. And I just became so enthralled. This was, you know, Russia in 1992 and ended up going back, living in Kaliningrad in 1993. Of course, if you kind of know Russia, it's its own enclave on the Baltic, separate from the rest of Russia, bordering Mm -hmm. Poland and Lithuania. And I just found it just fascinating. And I went to graduate school at Columbia and ended up having an area language studies fellowship to go back to Russia and to Kazakhstan. And that sort of just like opened up this interest in sort of understanding the role of natural resources on politics. And specifically then, you know, looking at political transition, the politics of transition in that time in the 90s in the former Soviet Union. So I kind of started to really sort of deepen my focus in the natural resource space. And yeah, so ended up spending a lot more time in Kazakhstan and very much looking predominantly at the hydrocarbon space. And then sort of over time as evolutions happen and as the our own sort of energy transition and evolutions are taking place across the space. Yeah, no, I now cover different types of energy and very much about energy security. And I guess probably in 2015, I was the academic director at the time at the Center for Global Affairs you know, I was kind of looking around and I said, you know what, we we can't be a center for global affairs and not be spending a lot more time thinking and teaching about what's happening in the cyberspace. So at that point, we began kind of the 
the design of a new master's program, which we launched in 2019, the MS in Global Security, Conflict, and Cybercrime. And, you know, it's very much has been designed to, you know, help to prepare professionals who come into our classroom as students, but to prepare them for, you know, understanding the very rapidly changing cyber threat landscape. But to, um, we're not doing the the computer science and then very deeply technical. We're doing more of the policy side, kind of giving the landscape the the understanding, like security risks from different vantage points. So yeah, it's a growing program. Really happy to be a part of it, and it's uh, been a tremendous learning experience. Harshal, ocho sus options pasiva, no, how did that possible? So that's very, very interesting. You know, you had the chance, it sounds like, to see the Russian Federation emerge out of the Soviet Union. I travel there extensively. I have family who's there. So I've been to Russia many, many times, but I didn't start going until, you know, the last seven years or so. And all the folks that I know there speak like it was the Wild West at the time when you were there. So given all that, what would you say was like the biggest surprise for you of, you know, moving to there, you know, coming from kind of Western culture, going to an Eastern European culture is obviously shocking on its own. But what was the surprise to you about, you know, kind of a post-Soviet that in that era? And I we won't dwell on this, by the way, but I'm very curious to know from someone who isn't Russian to what they thought of 92-93 Russia. That's a great question. So having sort of grown in terms of a lot of my education prior, like really through finishing university. So I finished university in 1990. So most of my like pre-finishing undergrad was while the Soviet Union was still intact. So I think I had a kind of an image, right? And I had done Soviet economics and Soviet politics for at St. Anthony's while I was, you know, studying abroad. So I had a, you know, I think my image was different than what my ultimate experience was when I arrived in 1992. Mm -hmm. And as people have described to you, it was very much like the Wild West. And it was though you just this, I always will think back though of Reagan's like the evil empire. And I get to Moscow, I arrive in Moscow and it's too long of a story to go into in terms of how I was met because I was traveling alone, but it was so extraordinary. But I, you also saw Russia when it was kind of on its knees, right? Mm-hmm. It was, you know, the ruble was pretty much worthless. There was a real feeling of destabilization and people, right? This is, this is a huge transition for people. This was like going from like everything that they knew, everything that they had come to, and again, you know, believe in or in some ways trust, maybe not 100% trust, mm-hmm. that was completely, completely taken away. And it was also, I saw a kind of a a weak Russia at the time, right? It was a Russia that was struggling. People were struggling. People were, there was tremendous dislocation from like a a safety side on the part of citizens. But I, I met really wonderful people and it just piqued my curiosity to want to go back. And then being in Kaliningrad, and this was a former military enclave. Mm-hmm. And I visited some of the sites and I saw the military equipment. I'm not an expert in military equipment, but I didn't see, I guess, this like 
hyper modern equipment that I had kind of imagined that I would see that we were mm-hmm. what is the Cold War and all this, the threats. I guess I I didn't feel that sense that this was a massive security threat. Of course, I understand mm-hmm. that the nuclear weapons and everything like that, but you, I definitely saw a country that was, yeah, it was developing. It wasn't the developed Russia that I imagined mm-hmm. it would be. Uh, so it was really eye-opening and quite exquisite from a just a personal, like, educational experience. As I met, like, the intellectual, like, depth and, like, the conversations that I had, you know, you go from talking about literature to talking about, like, and this was when Yeltsin and people were, like, disgusted with Yeltsin. I remember one family, like, he was on TV and they're like, this is our president? It's an embarrassment, he, you know. So there was also this sense of this, I don't know, it was it was a quite a beautiful and a very like, I think a very linchpin moment for my life. Because then from there, I really, I was like, I have to continue to study sure. Russia. Then I eventually went into Central Asia. But that's very, uh, very interesting. You are though, I think you might be the first American I've ever met who was there in that time, all the other folks I know are are Russians. So their perspective on it is completely different, you know. They would have been probably like, it was awful, right? They remember, maybe they remember it feeling like they there was such a feeling of scarcity, like a feeling of- For sure. What, what, does, what holds for tomorrow? I'll yeah, just give you one, one anecdote. I was there in 1997, back again, and I was actually doing a homestay because I was really trying to like improve my Russian and- I had gone out with some people who were Western journalists, and uh, there was a journalist there who covered financial markets. And he said to me, he's like, tell your host family to sell, to uh, convert their rubles to dollars, like immediately. If they're holding rubles, tell them they got to like, they got to. So I went, I went home that evening and I told my host mother and she laughed. She's like, ha, you know, kind of, yeah, we've heard that before. And sure enough, the next day was the run on banks. Sure. And so people who were holding rubles under their mattresses or wherever they held them was just completely worthless. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's happened. Uh, Sparebank uh, has had troubles like that multiple times. So let's talk energy politics. So I think a lot of people in particular, when they think of energy politics as it relates to kind of the modern world, they typically see it through the lens of just sanctions. You know, in particular, from kind of Western perspective, that's all they usually hear about the political aspects of these things. So if you would tell us some about like what your day to day look like and what things in that space are most interesting to you. Thank you. I um, really appreciate this question. My day to day is, you know, you know, I'm at a very big university, NYU. So part of my day is partially administrative because I'm the associate dean of two graduate programs. So, and I work very closely with students. I mean, the days that I like are really, sort of, I feel like are such a like a gift, right? Are the days that I'm teaching, the days, you know, when I'm in the classroom helping students to kind of understand geopolitics, energy security. So this semester I'm teaching energy, environment, resource security. So we're in this, we're in the throes now, the first couple of weeks of looking at energy security and energy politics, right? And I'm just always 
surprised, I guess, given how critical energy is for all aspects of our lives, right? Like there's nothing, if you take energy out of our lives, like you, when you look around, it's everywhere and how we use it. And so that to me is, you know, helping people to understand energy and then, you know, putting some pretty, like being very pragmatic, honestly, because I think there's a underappreciation for energy generally, and there's an underappreciation for how much, if we think energy, if we're thinking about certain resources like oil, like how much oil the world uses every day, like Mm -hmm. 102 million barrels a day. And that's where it kind of gets super interesting about the politics, because if you, the world needs 102 million barrels a day, not every country in the world produces oil. So you have a collection of countries that every day they are, you know, producing oil that then has to get moved, has to get, you know, transported to destinations. It has to be refined. And then, you know, it eventually finds its way, you know, being consumed across different products, whether it be gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, and I could go on. So a lot of, I feel like my work is trying to help kind of explain and uncover, and I think build curiosity around, it's a fascinating space. It's every day, you know, if we start to, we eventually go to talk about, you know, Russia, Ukraine, right? You know, so what's happening in the world affects than energy politics. And again, I've only focused a little bit now here on hydrocarbons, but even solar panels, there's a supply chain around solar panels. China happens to be the largest manufacturer of solar panels. You know, as our relationship with China changes, not going in a positive direction, you know, those are very significant risks around different markets. So- Yeah. You know, the Russia-Ukraine thing, I'm, you know, armchair observer here, right? Far from an expert, but I found it quite surprising how seemingly unprepared everybody was for how quickly Russia was able to pivot to find a new market for their LNGs, their LNG production. They really thought, oh, we're going to sanction them and they're just going to, you know, dry up. And China was very quick to absorb all of that. And I also found it interesting that some of the very countries that were behind and supportive of sanctions uh, swung into action to build uh, large LNG transport vessels to help facilitate moving the LNG from presumably Shanghai and whatnot on the other side of China uh, so the product could, and again, I'm assuming here, but presumably could make its way into the global market just now as a, with a new seller, because unlike petroleum, right, where you can kind of tell where it came from because it's either sweet or, you know, there's various, you know, chemical aspects of it. I don't know that that's true for LNG. And so by the time if China starts selling LNG out the other side, no one's going to know. And I, I really felt like people got surprised by that or caught off guard by that, that they didn't think it was going to happen so fast. And it took all of six months or something. And interestingly, like I said, some of these very countries who condemned the whole action, they were more than happy to suddenly start selling China all these LNG transport vessels, uh, which is you know super interesting. So let's talk about this interaction of cyber with this space. So 
Now, when the Crimea conflict first began a uh, number of years back, what's it, nine years ago now, something like that, when that first kicked off, you know, one of the very first things that Russia had conducted was a cyber attack on a lot of the infrastructure there, largely things that were of, you know, tactical or strategic military value. But they also went after hydroelectric facilities and water movement systems through the freshwater access for Crimea. And it was similar to what they had done in the South Ossetia situation when Georgia initiated, you know, tried to kind of reclaim South Ossetia and they responded. Uh, they kind of shut down all of Georgia in a matter of minutes electronically. And I had the chance to go there and study some of that in the weeks after that. I think it was only a couple of days, but in the time right after that, I had the chance to kind of see that firsthand. In the Crimea thing, I noticed it wasn't like terribly dissimilar. How common of a perspective is uh, cyber when you think of disagreements come about? How readily available would you say people, and by people I'm talking, you know, adversarial governments or whatnot, but how quickly would you say they are to go to kind of cyber as the weapon in that space? Because like I said, Russia did it very quickly in two instances for totally different reasons. You know, the first was a wholly kinetic effort. And then the other was, I would argue, political, at least at, at the start, and it turned kinetic. But how quick would you say governments are to draw that arrow out of their quiver? Again, you know, there are different capacities across different governments and, and different nefarious governments, right, that you talk about. You know, I think the capacity is there, right? The capacity is there just to launch quickly, right? I think, as you pointed out, there can be different motivations, you know, tactical, it could be what they're trying, their end, what they're trying to achieve, so I think the reality, though, is that opportunity is growing, right? It's not where it's not decreasing. And now you have many countries who have the capacities to launch cyber attacks. You know, I think in the context of the more sort of like Ukraine today, I think Ukraine, because of the examples that you gave, right, from 2014, had greater preparedness and you have, I think, 30,000, you know, professionals who are working in the space who were there, who could, in some cases, not all cases, clearly, who could, you know, withstand and recover, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not always the case, right? I think, you know, for Ukraine today, they had the experiences from 2014 that were very destabilizing at the time. And, you know, now there, you know, there's an onslaught right now. It's not just like boots on the ground, but you have attempted cyber attacks. You have attacks against, you know, threats against, as you pointed out, critical resources, you know, water, hydroelectric power plants, you know, if your power stations, I mean, Ukraine has had multiple, you know, kind of blackouts that have been directly inflicted, you know, by Russia. I think it's part of contemporary warfare, right? Mm -hmm. So the way we think about warfare today and we think about the arsenals that are available, it's, you know, it's beyond tanks and guns and, and missiles. It's the capacities and, you know, to launch cyber attacks that can be much more sort of have wider damage because it can inflict wider damage across a population, right? Is, yeah, I, I think it can be underestimated. Yeah, no, I wholly agree. And I think the reality that people really need to take into consideration is that it requires 
preparatory access because you can't start to get access once the you know balloon to go to, to start the conflict starts. You have to already be positioned. Uh, and again, like the example that I gave, Georgia, the Republic of Georgia was shut down in minutes. Uh, their entire infrastructure, uh, phone systems, all of that, their power and whatnot stayed running, but the rest of their like internet access, telephone access, and presumably satellite communications and whatnot were all instantly affected. It was it was remarkable. I think something like that, you know. It's interesting. So that's like forced shutdown, right? They have like mm-hmm. it's shut down. They're not intentionally by that, you know. The, but I think in some cases, like some governments may have to like make some choices, right? If the threat is come, and they know they're pretty sure the intelligence that, the, and they're not going to be able to withstand resist, mm-hmm. they might be better preempting a shutdown, sure. right? That's that's more managed and controlled and less destabilizing for the population right but again this sure. is this is you know we can scenario that out the, pr- practically speaking it's it's very difficult to do sure yeah Bl- blow up your own bridges to keep them from crossing you know well not blow up i don't mean that i don't no, mean I'm, yeah I'm, I'm i'm not meaning literally but i'm saying okay. like, that's, it's like you know, i don't want anyone to think that i'm like suggesting that no 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 uh funny enough uh, or not funny haha but coincidentally i guess let me go with that the university of michigan just had to make the same decision just last week they had a cyber event on their network uh, and they opted to leave the internet for 72 96 hours something like that you know so that they could contain those things so as geopolitics come into play, you know, a lot of practitioners uh, in the security space, they tend to focus purely on the technical aspects. So remote access Trojans, you know, sexy APT stuff. Outside of that, what are some kind of components that practitioners today probably get wrong or that they should be taking into consideration in the bigger picture, like aside from that, as geopolitics affect uh, cyber? I think, you know, you kind of just outlined it, right? But cyber risks and geopolitical conflict, right? As you connect them, you can't really disconnect them anymore. And I think that you, the sophistication of attacks, right? And understanding that to use a book that was written by Richard Haas, the former president of the Council on Foreign Relations, like the world was in disarray when he wrote the book. But it's more so in disarray today. And, you know, you're seeing countries like China, North Korea, of course, Russia, Iran. These are, you know, they have very sophisticated systems. They have very sophisticated. And what they could do is, again, you think about banking. I work in the energy space, you know, transmission lines, power stations, nuclear power plants. You know, there's so much how we sort of think about both resilience as well as we think about prevention, right? And some of these, again, I think when a lot of people think about attacks, you're thinking about something that's going to be, you know, maybe big, but these can be kind of a cascade of smaller attacks that can have significant impact. So I just think that in a real consciousness, I mean, that there's a lot that's going on that when we look at the world, there's a lot of tension in different parts of the world and how that tension then potentially translates into increased cyber risks and the ways in which those risks can be inflicted and then do harm. So I think that idea of being preparedness for 
a multitude of possible ways that, you know, I think cyber risk is changing. And mm -hmm. now you have also AI that's, and the AI has always been, and how we're, again, in my space, we're electrifying so much more across our energy system, which provides entries and passage for the possibility of, of more vulnerabilities to seep in. Sure. So let's talk about some about your program at the Center for Global Affairs, the cyber program. It's a graduate program, I assume. And tell us some about what the program curriculum looks like, the types of things that you study, uh, what you hope to impart on those folks who go through the program, and what are some of the prerequisites that your program looks for for people before they come in? Well, thanks, David. Always happy to talk about our um, MMS and Global Security Complex and Cybercrime. Yeah, so we, it's a graduate program, and we are really sort of preparing students to work in intelligence spaces, to go do cyber risk, to go work in corporations, to go work across government agencies. We have a number of students who graduate and go work both across U.S. government agencies as well as their home countries. We do have a number of international students you know, strategy and planning intelligence, a lot, of course, focused on the, you know, intelligence and analysis and security threats and cyber crimes. We also look at money laundering and we look at emerging technology and national security threats, which is a very popular course that we offer. If you're sort of just thinking about sort of the foundational, what we consider the foundational courses, we we uh, cyber law, cyber power and global security, infrastructure security and resilience, and mission assurance and cyber organizations. So those are the classes that all students must take because mm -hmm. we feel those are, as again, foundational. You take those courses, they're going to help with all the other courses. And then once you get sort of deeper into the program, organized cyber crime, cyber criminology, transnational terrorism, disinformation and narrative warfare, and whole host of other types of classes. We do have a course called The Future of War. And the future of war, of course, is looking at these, you know, the rapidly changing landscape for military technologies and what that looks like. So that's also applicable to the cyber program. And we're building out a course on specifically on energy infrastructure, critical energy infrastructure. One of our courses is on critical infrastructure, but again, that's that's a little bit broader. We're going to kind of take a deep dive and go very much into specific different types of energy infrastructure because mm -hmm. here in the United States, there's a lot of pressure and demand on utilities to, of course, to electrify, build out. We're building out. We need to build out a lot of new transmission lines if we're, you know, talking going back to kind of net zero types of so how students are understand and prepared to sort of work both again at the risk side, but also in terms of thinking about the design side, thinking about what this needs to look like. What do we need to do to be with resilient to the potential for attacks, but also in the event of an attack, how we can withstand. Sure. So what does your faculty look like? Do you have like mostly uh, retired federal agency folks or, you know, economists? What's Give us some idea about the faculty that uh, teach. Oh, well, I'm a huge fan of our faculty. We have wonderful faculty. We have some full-time faculty. Right now, the academic director for the program comes out of the Canadian uh, military and comes out of the United Nations. The former academic director came out of working the U.S. military and doing a lot of work for the U.S. government. 
he's continuing to teach for us. So we have uh, faculty who work in utilities. We have faculty who work in uh, the Department of Homeland Security. We actually have three faculty who work uh, in the Department of Homeland Security and they teach for us as adjuncts. We have a faculty who sits in the um, FBI, a faculty who sits in a bank on the cybersecurity side of the department. Yeah. So very diverse. It's diverse. Of experiences. So definitely, uh, I would assume, very good outcomes. Uh, folks, it sounds like, would get a very broad understanding of, of the topic. Um, I'm so impressed by how well our students are doing. I mean, I'm not surprised because we designed the program to make sure that they were really marketable, but um, mm -hmm. we designed it so they also have, they do a capstone. They work with companies and organizations while they're in the program. They work with the Department of Homeland Security, mm -hmm. part of their final projects. And yeah, our students, uh, many of them are hired before they graduate. Sure. Because you know, it's a competitive program, really are making sure that they have the skills. You know, students also can take a course or two at the Tandon School of Engineering to kind of get more of the kind of go deeper into the the highly more technical side. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think it's we've curated it. So it's sort of it's meeting both current as well as future market demands. Yeah, absolutely. So future curriculum, aside from the future warfare stuff, uh, do you guys have topics that you're looking to develop material towards? And could you imagine what those might look like, say, over the next five years? Do you see trends that are emerging that you, as the overall center, that you're hoping to you know, try to develop material for? Yeah. So, I mean, you said emerging, right? So, of course, emerging technology, some of which we already know, and some of it we don't know. So how mm -hmm. do you think about those disruptive technologies that we're going to see or how we think about, you know, AI is not new, but the proliferation and how it's like, you know, it's in higher education, AI in energy, it's climate, it's across basically everything we do. And so how do we think about how do we teach and help prepare students for kind of understanding it and, you know, kind of taking some of the misunderstanding of it out of the equation. And of course, you know, because we're, it's global security conflict and cybercrime, you know, we are also sort of thinking about that changing landscape of conflict. And again, you know, kind of what I said earlier, you know, I think most people think of conflicts and they think of, you know, kind of more traditional warfare. And that's just the nature of what's happening in the robotics space right? The nature of things that are just sort of happening across different military machinery and capabilities is quite extraordinary, yeah. right? Drones, we do a project with the counterterrorism executive directorate. So when you're thinking about counterterrorism and you're thinking about a whole host, right? Talking about, talking about cyber risks, but you have sort of new, you know, new instruments of weaponization. And so how do you counter those a proliferation of various risks. Sure. So just, you know, maybe oddball question, but I'm curious to know your take on it. I mean, could you see a future where there are conflicts that are handled by, you know, the Boston Dynamics? Uh, if you've seen their videos of their uh, robots, they have the one that does like parkour, right? Already, you know, put AI in its head and a rifle in its hands, and that thing's probably almost ready now 
to go do stuff. Could you see a future where conflict is primarily non-kinetic like that, or that which is kinetic is, you know, whether they be aerial drones, bipedal drones? I mean, could you imagine some future like that? And if you can, how far off would you say the potential for that is? One, I could imagine it. Two, if you can describe it, right? If you can describe it as you just did, right? then you've already imagined it. So can you imagine it then in the context of like, yeah, no, 100%. I think you used to imagine that it was like so far into the future, so far into the future. But when you look at the pace with which technological change is happening and where you're seeing what these robots can do and you're seeing the amount of money that's also going into this space, yeah. And then bio warfare, right? Over, you know, using a drone. I mean, I hope it's not in the near. I hope it's not something that we see soon. But I think what you'll see the same way, I mean, you're you're an expert in this space, right? You'll see sort of, you know, it's like you're going to hear about examples of its use. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to be like a recognition of the power in that space. And then you're going to then see it's going to, it'll feel incremental until it's not incremental sure until you look back and you're like what happened so that was just a and i think it's going to be combined the non-kinetic and the kinetic right it's not going to be either or it's going to be you know both end but i definitely yeah 100 percent. like i remember this is probably going back 10 years ago i was at the carnegie council for ethics and international affairs and this this subject of you know, robots. And this was, again, this was kind of when it was still very early. And the ethics, right? And now you place the capacities of AI and some of the uncertainties of that, right? When you would give a robot, for example, you know, a gun or operation of a drone. I think in most of the cases, you could say that it will operate according to plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in the U.S. Marine Corps, and one thing I know for sure is that plans typically are uh, diverse and well thought out. We had a playbook, and I was only at a brigade level, but we had a playbook for pretty much any scenario in the Pacific theater, even countries that are of no, you know, you don't even think of them as a player. You know, we had essentially a playbook for what happens if, you know, some minor country by volume suddenly becomes a hot location or even they themselves stand up and start to attack. Uh, So I always thought that was interesting. It's the foreseeability side of, I think that's something we need to spend extra, but we need to spend a lot more time thinking about scenario building. I think Mm -hmm. You, know, you did it as someone who said, thank you for your service, like in the Marines. We need to be building out a lot of and understand that a lot of the scenarios that we might plan out may never materialize, and that will be a good thing. Mm-hmm. But that, to me, is the lack of preparedness is what scares me sure. for the variety of different scenarios that are emerging and, and shifting, right? There's a real, like, the scenarios we built out five, 10 years ago need to be completely rethought or at least put a new lens on those scenarios as to how you think five, 10 years, even a year down, you know, as we think about risk. 
an underappreciated risk. Because I think sometimes we're focused on the risks that we can kind of eat more easily, imagine and see. And then there's the ones that are kind of like under, but can have a sizable impact. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody likes to uh, imagine the movie plot scenarios, and then they kind of get bored with the idea of doing the, you know, like you said, lesser underlying uh, issues. They tend to just overlook those. One thing that I say often, uh, all the time, sometimes in defense of my pessimism for what it's worth, but that's, you know, plan for the worst and you'll only be pleasantly surprised. So though, like I said, it's sometimes perceived as pessimistic, but in reality, it's, I would say it's in defense of optimism. Uh, It's hard to be optimistic if you know in your mind that there are these things that you're unprepared for. Uh, so for what it's worth, and and the therapist that I uh, don't have, by the way, but the therapist that I should talk to, I'm sure would disagree with me. But anyway. But David, I have to add, since we did start this conversation with your uh, really wonderful questions about my experiences in Russia. Mm-hmm. So a joke that I did here while I was in Russia, which I uh, share often with students is, uh, what is a pessimist? What's that? A well-informed optimist. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would I would absolutely agree with that. So in mind of our time, we try to hit, you know, that lunchtime sweet spot in length. So one last question. What are some actual actionable pieces of advice that you might have for, you know, a decision maker, a C-level person, you know, someone out doing policy? Uh, what would be some pieces of actionable advice for them to walk away with a better understanding of uh, geopolitics that and the interaction intersection uh, with cyber? I have to make a plug for my program. Well, one, you could enroll in the MS in Global Security Conflict and Cybercrime and take okay. our take Fair our classes and learn about what we're uh, what we're doing and how we're preparing people to work across the cyber landscape. Sure. Uh, actual items, yeah. I mean, again, listen to your podcast. You know, understand. You know how quickly things are changing. Yeah. You know, I think you know, right? You always have to be upskilling. All right. You have to be sort of understanding that how like again kind of going back to that what can seem sort of incremental can be monumental when it comes to impact so i think we we have to be constantly like astute and thinking and you know hyper aware of okay you know if whatever position you're in kind of looking around like doing that you know doing a lot of 360s right with your teams with you know, what it is you're doing, your operations, mm-hmm. what it look like, where might there be weak spots that, you know, and I think also it's very important to bring people in who can give a perspective that may not be the regular perspective that's shared in a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that just goes across so many different sort of areas. I think we all benefit sometimes from fresh eyes and a lens of a different perspective. But yeah, yeah. no, I think that's... Uh, you know, there's a lot that can be done, but I think taking the time to learn and taking the time to not just, you know, it's not just about learning it, but then it's about, okay, how does that then get applied in the context of wherever anyone is working or how they're sort of wanting to better understand. So aside from journals, uh, specific academic journals, 
Any suggestions for folks that do want to learn more? Are there any general media or publications where you feel that they have a good desk that's covering kind of, you know, topics, you know, and I would like to say, you know, fairly and accurately, uh, that type of stuff. Because a lot of times I think in particular around geopolitics, you can kind of see the bias in the reporting. But do you have any advice for folks if they did want to kind of follow this stuff so that they could understand how to adjust their own policies, how to look for, you know, new control? Controls to help protect themselves, understand, you know, what adversaries are doing and like the people who are directing them, you know, aka the governments there. Any suggestions for things that people could follow? Foreign affairs is very accessible, right? Mm-hmm. So I think I would definitely recommend foreign James, affairs. do you recommend oh, James? Like, very James? good too. Yeah. War on the Rocks is very good. Okay. Um, really appreciate the work of the Sufan Center, especially okay. around sort of conflict risk. Cyber, they uh, they have some really great people who do, um, they run a great global security conference. And I think that they do a, like a cross, especially again, around geopolitics and around, and also, you know, not terrorism at home, but terrorism also away. Foreign policy can be good as well. Mm-hmm. Um, really on the energy side, sort of geopolitics, I really appreciate the work of Javier Bless, who writes for Bloomberg, mm-hmm. very pragmatic. He's kind of like super objective, which I really, um, you shared earlier about the LNG. Like those are the stories that he tells. You know, he's not someone who's going to be like, it has to be, we just have to share the story that most people are already like, they want to believe, but here's the actual reality. I do news items by John, personally, John Ellis. It's just like a quick daily. I do Home and Away by Richard Haas. Those Mm -hmm. are my weekly kind of like just roundups that are really useful personally, and I recommend to students, I have a long list of people on LinkedIn that I recommend students follow because that can be, give them very sort of timely and up-to-date what they're reading, like the experts across various spaces Mm -hmm. to follow them and then say, okay, what is it that's informing how they're thinking about the cyber risk space? So that's- that's Using that as a segue, speaking of LinkedIn, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Very interesting conversation. As I had warned you in the pre-show, I don't tend to follow the questions that we send you as they are, because I just I, I find the guests to be often way more interesting uh, than the questions that we could have come up with in advance. So, but that said, perhaps you could. I assume you have LinkedIn since you mentioned it. Do you have other channels where people might follow your work and things like that? Yeah, LinkedIn is the place where I'm uh, predominantly sharing um, updates and things like that. Mm-hmm. I, think I have a Twitter account, or it's not Twitter anymore; it's X. So I haven't really been using it. Um, You can follow at NYUCGA. We are on, um, we have a LinkedIn, the Center for Global Affairs. We, yeah, but predominantly, as I said, we're we're on uh, social media. I'm doing a lot. um, I do a lot of events, both uh, moderating panels and being a panelist, a lot in the energy and uh, climate space and risk Mm -hmm. space. Excellent. Um, well, perhaps if you would be willing to, uh, you could do a, a LinkedIn post of those folks that you recommend people follow. Oh, that's a great uh, and, idea. And and you can blame it on me. You can say, uh, I was just on this podcast and I they proposed I, I share some uh, list of folks. Um, so again, Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, uh, that's all the time we have. Uh, we went a little bit over than our normal window, but definitely interesting stuff. I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it. And thank you very much. I hope to keep in touch with you. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.